Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Grania Nier, and this week, the best bits from The Explainer in 2021. The relentless COVID-19 pandemic might have you tempted to say that nothing much has changed since this time last year. But a crisis in Afghanistan, a tumultuous DUP leadership challenge, and a soccer super league for Europe were just some of the issues that sprung up this year that no one could have predicted. There were fears about energy blackouts, a HSE cyber attack, and a diplomatic incident involving a Ryanair plane. Those are just some of the topics that the Explainer podcast broke down and explained, thanks to a great lineup of guests that have joined us from various fields and locations across the world. And of course, the pandemic brought some surprises of its own. What's the story with antigen tests? What do we know about the Delta and Omicron variants? And, a big one, why are COVID cases rising despite Ireland's high vaccination rate? We hope you've enjoyed listening to these episodes as much as we have enjoyed putting them together. Thank you so much for giving us your time and attention. If you'd like to support The Explainer into 2022, you can contribute to the journal on a monthly or one-off basis. You can also leave us a review or forward one of our episodes to a friend. So, the team behind The Explainer have had a look back over the last 12 months and are going to bring you some of our favourite explanations on issues that are not just ripe for explaining, but that taught us something that might be useful into 2022 and beyond that. I've got the honour of going first, and my pick is an episode about Ireland's concern about winter power shortages. As if the pandemic didn't teach us enough about what we shouldn't take for granted, There were warnings this autumn about possible blackouts and a significant hike in our electricity bills as Europe faced challenges with its energy supply. This prompted scrutiny of a system that many of us may not have given much thought to before now, so the episode set out to answer some of the questions about the energy crisis, like where exactly does Ireland's energy supply come from and how much does it cost? It was hard to pick just one clip from this episode, as it had a lot of interesting bits of information that made you appreciate the light bulb in your bedside lamp a bit more. And it also had information that you might use into the future, like the best time to turn on your washing machine to avoid peak energy times. Guests Mwerin A. Lynch, energy economics researcher at the ESRI, and the journal's own business reporter Ian Curran explained all the interesting reasons why we're worried about winter blackouts and why data centres aren't solely to blame. We get our gas primarily from Russia, really. Um, We have some that we import from Carib, and then we get the rest through a pipeline from the UK, which is called Moffat, and they get some of their gas, they get some liquefied natural gas, um, and they get some from the Nordics. But essentially, Russia kind of controls the gas supply to Europe, and gas prices have gone very high lately in general. So that's one source of the uncertainty. Another source of the uncertainty is the fact that at the moment, we actually have two very large gas generators that have been out of action for a while and they've needed some maintenance now we're hoping that they'll get back by this winter but they do serve a good bit of um, of our demand so we'd certainly need those back sooner rather than later um, and then the other uncertainties are on the demand side so we have increasing demand from data centers and that's putting pressure on the grid as well and then the fact that over in britain They have other concerns around inflation, some Brexit-related concerns that mean that they've had um, a decent few um, companies going out of business, which unfortunately means that they're having some uncertainties in their supply. And because we're interconnected to them and because we rely on them, particularly when, when the wind is not as strong, then those uncertainties might feed into us as well. 
Yeah, Ian, if we just turn to the UK for a while, because people will probably have heard bits and pieces coming out um, from the BBC or wherever they get um, more UK content. What problems exactly are people in the UK facing now? The fundamental problem uh, or symptom is uh, is these kind of you know skyrocketing uh, electricity bills. Um, the main causes of that are, are as Murren touched on there. I suppose one of the big issues, of course, is the, the soaring cost of wholesale gas prices. Now that's a that's a global phenomenon, and and it's kind of a function a little bit of of the pandemic. We we saw kind of a lull, a drop off in demand for 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 gas and oil last year. Obviously, as economies were shut down and that sort of thing, and as economies have reopened this year, it's affected the kind of normal rhythm of the market so normally obviously gas prices would increase in the winter wholesale gas prices when there's huge demand for 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 gas and in the summer it would lull um but but that hasn't happened obviously this year there's actually just been a constant booming demand for gas globally one of the impacts of that it means that companies that store gas haven't been able to build up inventories of it uh, which means that there's less of it going around for the winter which has obviously caused the price to actually rise and then there's another other issues as well we're in sort of touched on brexit related issues i suppose there's been a lack of imports of gas that that that's a big problem over there as well part of that is because of I suppose, lower energy generation from wind over the summer in Europe. And then there was also a very specific problem, which was a fire at a converter plant, which connects the French grid to the British one, if I'm not mistaken. And obviously that happened last week. And it looks like that uh, plant is going to be out for at least a month, which is also uh, kind of choking off supply. So so all of these issues are kind of conspiring uh, and uh, to to cause electricity bills to increase over there uh, and also putting huge pressure on companies as well. The other kind of big, well, it won't be an elephant in the room for for very long, but data centers, you've already mentioned um, that they do put pressure on our grid here. Are they the core of the problem? And I'm also interested, and I was reading about this a little bit during the week to try and get an answer, is that is this problem unique to Ireland or do other countries obviously have data centres as well? Are they experiencing these same pressures? So the other countries do have data centres, it's true, but Ireland has a huge number and and an even larger number planned. Now, you have to, those kind of projections of how many data centres we'll have, you have to take them with a little bit of salt. There's kind of some double counting there, but it is true that, the number of data centers we have and the number of data centers planned is really, really high by international standards. Various reasons for that. One of them is that our climate is quite favorable for data centers and because our climate is on the cooler side, that means they don't have to spend as much money cooling the data centers themselves. And then you just have to ask about the general kind of policy environment. Data centers are kind of seen as being a good thing because these big tech companies are investing here. and. You know, if you have a choice between a big tech company putting their headquarters here and putting a data center here, I know which one I would choose. But are they the core of the problem? I wouldn't say so. I think they're just kind of one one piece in a jigsaw, but they're they're a big piece. And one of the things about data centers is their demand is not very variable. They just kind of sit there and they just store really um, data all day long. And there's some variability around what they use, but in some way there are advantages to having a kind of a big, if you're going to introduce an extra few hundred megawatts of demand, you kind of like it to just be constant demand. Whereas if you look at the other sources of new demand, things like electric vehicles, things like heating, they're much more variable and they might contribute to the peak demand. And that's really not what we want because it's at these peak hours that we're seeing these supply crunches. Michelle Hennessy, senior reporter at The Journal here. 
Well, there's never a good time for a massive cyber attack on a national healthcare system, but during a pandemic and the rollout of a national vaccination programme has to be up there with the worst timing. And I know I wasn't alone in wondering what type of person, or in this case, people, take advantage of a system that deals with life and death when it's at its most vulnerable. Cybersecurity expert Brian Honan spoke to the explainer in the aftermath of the HSC cyber attack. And he explained this wasn't a group of amateur hackers trying to prove a point. These types of ransomware attacks are orchestrated by ruthless, organised criminals. We're using the word hackers here, but I prefer to call them criminals because at the end of the day, this is, this, this is what they are. These are criminals and they are out to make money and they don't care who suffers or who hurts uh, in that process. And, you know, the HSE is the, the victim of a crime here. And unfortunately, all the staff, they are collateral damage of, of this attack, as indeed are the patients uh, who are having treatments uh, delayed as, as a result. But yeah, the, the, these are criminals. They're, they're highly organized, highly professional, well-funded, and uh, their motivation is to make money. As Michelle says, the, these are not the atypical image many people have of people who hack in, in, into computers of, of, of misguided teenagers, etc. These are criminal gangs and they are well-organized, located in countries such as Russia, former Soviet Union countries as well, or other jurisdictions that either don't have cybercrime laws, so what they're doing within their own countries may not deem to be actually illegal, even though it's illegal here in Ireland, or their governments, because of various reasons, maybe geopolitical reasons or corruption, etc., just turn a blind eye to what these gangs are doing. Indeed, many of these criminals gangs operating out of Russia uh, have uh, a test within their software to see is, is the computer they're about to uh, compromise or infect is, is it based in Russia? Does it have a Russian keyboard? Does it have uh, an IP address that belongs in Russia, etc.? And if it does, they won't compromise or attack that computer because they don't want to bring uh, attention to themselves by the Russian authorities. So this kind of has been this laissez-faire attitude by uh, the Russian government towards the, these criminal gang activities because, I suppose, from a Russian government point of view, the, the victims are all in, in the West. Hi, this is Aoife and my clip that I've chosen this year is from our episode in April called From Influencers to QAnon, How Misinformation Changed in Ireland Over the Past Year. We've looked at a lot of stuff around misinformation on The Explainer from those dodgy WhatsApp messages to conspiracy theories on Facebook. And in this episode, Sinead O'Carroll sat down with our deputy editor, Christine Bowen, who also heads up our debunk and fact check channels. And you'll know her from her work on The Explainer as well, too. And she was joined by Kieran O'Connor. He works for the Institute for for strategic dialogue. And that's basically a global organization that looks at finding solutions to extremism and disinformation and polarization. So they do a lot of work in looking into misinformation. So together, Christine and Kiran explained how misinfo has evolved and had evolved over the past year up to that point over COVID. But I've chosen a clip from it that I thought was really interesting because it's where Kiran talks about the link between far right groups and COVID-19 misinformation groups, which is a particularly interesting element to all of this. Here's what you had to say. Yeah, well, in, in, in that particular research that I was talking about, the, the methodology quickly behind that was that we tracked COVID conspiracy telegram communities and then we coded for, I think it was nine channels um, in the end, and we coded for the source of the content that was either being forwarded from other 
Telegram channels or being posted by these COVID conspiracy channels. And we found that 9%, almost 1 in 10 uh, messages that were being posted in Irish COVID conspiracy Telegram channels were coming from a far-right source. So that's one way we're trying to examine the, the intersection between um, far-right movement and, and COVID conspiracy movements. But we've also seen over the last year that this kind of COVID anti-lockdown movement has, has kind of been co-opted by uh, far-right uh, parties, influencers, figures, because this is a way to foster uh, anger and foster hostility and foster support for their political agenda uh, at, at recent protests in, in Dublin. We've seen far-right figures marching and we see them using the current period for their own political objectives. Now, it's important, of course, to state that people who may have questions about the current situation, about vaccines, about lockdowns, they are not far right. You know, they are not automatically labeled that um, because of their of their of their genuine questions. And it's an important distinction to make. But we do see that in this community of people who are seeking answers and and maybe a bit um, confused in the current period, there are far right groups, influencers, figures who are seeking to to co-opt that for their own political objectives. Hello, Nikki Ryan here. And the episode I've picked as my favourite explanation of the year is one from July, when we examined what was going on in Cuba. That's when the country witnessed a wave of rare protests. To find out more and to get a sense of exactly what it was like to live in Cuba, we spoke to author and former editor of The Observer magazine, Rory Nickel. This episode always stuck in my head as the highs and lows of Cuban life were apparent immediately. Rory showed us on the video call the incredible view from his Havana apartment but then spoke about the very real struggles many Cubans face in their day-to-day life. Well, there's three main shortages, which is food. There's people who are queuing for days now just for chicken. There's a curfew because of the pandemic, and so um, people will rent rooms and stairwells, or rent room and stairwells. I've even heard of people hiding in trees overnight to avoid the police to stay in their place for the queue. So there's that. There's very little food. The electricity is because the government doesn't have enough gas. And worst of all, I think, is there's a terrible, terrible shortage of medicines. This, for people with heart disease, such things, that's, I mean, it's, it's shockingly worrying. There's no antibiotics, which is also a horror show. And uh, it comes down to really grim and small things, like there's a scabies epidemic in the hospitals. My partner is expecting a child, and so she's always in for tests, and it's a horrible thought that she might catch scabies in there. And uh, it's easily dealt with, though, if you have the right cream, but there's none of that cream in Cuba, so no one can deal with it, so a lot of children have scabies. So these sort of things are enormous pressure on people. Sorry, to answer your actual question, which was the genesis. The genesis is uh, very clearly the pandemic in the short term. It, uh, I would imagine a lot of your listeners have probably visited Cuba. Um, it's a very, very popular tourist destination. It's an absolutely fantastic place to visit. In normal times, I spend a lot of time doing travel writing, and I love this country uh, above many others. But tra- tourism just ended. It just stopped, as you could imagine. And that meant that the economy contracted by 11%, meant that the government didn't get any foreign exchange. It, the, the government lives very hand-to-mouth on foreign exchange. It doesn't participate in many of the international organizations that would lend it money. 
and so it and it also refuses to allow anybody else to import anything it has to do all the importing itself so it imports everything and it can't pay its bills so nothing's coming in so there's huge shortages now you can then go back to why it doesn't have any money beyond the contraction under pandemic other countries haven't suffered like that and then you get into an ideological battle it could be because you think that communist regimes don't work and that having a marxist centralized state is inefficient and that after 62 years of it that is we're seeing the results of that or you could think it's the result of a 60 year old us embargo which has strangled the country there was a detente as people will probably remember um, in 2016 rolling stones came to visit fast and furious 8 was filmed here and most importantly barack obama appeared saying Kebola cubanos which means what's up cuban cubans in the most street language you can get and he said he wanted to bring an end to the last vestiges of the cold war that didn't survive trump trump tightened the screws stopped cubans living abroad sending money back as much as he could and joe biden seems to have decided for either internal political reasons or because he thinks trump's policies were working to overthrow the government here has decided to continue on that that all leads to a huge crunch and all those things are probably true and therefore there's no food Hi, this is Sinead O'Carroll. I'm jumping back in from my maternity leave to take part in our Best Bits episode. And because this year we spoke about a lot of international stories getting attention in Ireland. And throughout those episodes, I learned a lot about countries that aren't always on our radar, places like Cuba and Belarus. Those shows almost made it to the top of my list, as did our interview with Oscar-nominated Irish director Tom Moore about what it's like to well, get nominated for an Oscar. I found that one really enlightening and interesting and a bit gossipy as well, so it was good crack. But I did come back here today to make sure one of our crossover episodes with the 42 gets some love. We've had a couple of really, really popular shows with soccer writer Gavin Cooney. You might remember one about the planned Super League, which caused huge controversy at the time. And another, which is my pick today, on Ireland's manager, Stephen Kenny. During that show, we asked why there was so much talk about one man in Irish football. And the answers took us to all sorts of places, including John Delaney's deals. And with the explainer, of course, we ended up at Brexit at some stages. It's always such a pleasure having Gavin on the show. He's such a fountain of knowledge about all things football and it's particularly about this Irish team. So I hope you enjoy this clip. And if you haven't heard the full episode, it's worth going back and listening to it. A lot of his points still stand Thanks very much. Happy Christmas, Happy New Year and see you in 2022. So you mentioned there earlier, like watching Ireland for that year with under Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane, you know, not scoring goals was difficult. So is that how Stephen Kenny's name started to pop up? Because actually how they played was becoming more important than qualification or results. Mm, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, uh, Stephen, Stephen Kenny, I could point to the evidence of his Dundalk team in Europe, whereas they didn't go about it in a, in a way we might uh, associate with Ireland teams in international competition. You know, they, they didn't, you know, put 10 men behind the ball and hope to nick things on, on a set piece or, or put them under pressure as uh, as the line as the line goes back in Jack Charlton's days. They played attacking, expansive football. They scored goals and, and they collected points like they've no Irish team had any had actually collected as many points in a European group stage 
as that Dundalk team. They won a game away at home to Maccabi Tel Aviv of Israel and drew away to AZ Alkmaar of, of the Netherlands. So Stephen, uh, and, and throughout his uh, career, has always stressed like the passing game and playing a better style of football. And look, he leaned into it. He did a, he did a great interview with Emmett Malone of the Irish Times in 2018 when it seemed that he might actually be a contender for the job to say the style of play and improving the style of play is an imperative. And I believe that, that, Irish, uh, that Irish teams can play. And I think like maybe this is slightly too arch and it's insubstantial, but like turn back to 2018, like this is, you know, this is post Brexit and that's those tortured processes of what Brexit might look like. And like the whole, like everyone in all walks of life in Ireland was reassessing Ireland's relationship with Britain. And I think the same conversation was had about football here because Ireland has always effectively outsourced its elite football to the UK. So young players will be developed here by schoolboy or nursery clubs up until the age of 16 and then they would get a move to you know Man United or Liverpool or one of the big clubs in England and they'd put them into their elite academies and develop them from there that stopped working because the UK clubs started recruiting around the world and I think there was there was a wider uh, an understanding that you know we have to we have to take control of our own destiny here and Stephen Kenny because he came from the League of Ireland and because he was embedded in the football culture here kind of told that story of self-determination that is the likes of Mick McCarthy didn't because Mick lives in England would have always managed in England wouldn't be as aware of the structures here so I think I th- and I think that's also fueled a lot of the debate and the polarisation about Stephen Kenny we talk about why is everything just focused on this figure of Kenny like there's so many other moving parts like most obviously he's not on the pitch to you know put the ball in the net so why do we always talk about the manager I think that that kind of crystallises the debate it became a You'll, you'll hear it kind of actually referred to as a battle for the soul of Irish football. And I think Stephen Kenny really uh, kind of encapsulated that story of self-determination and the fact that we have to take control of our own destiny, whereas Mick McCarthy was just the latest in a long line of managers who obviously have an affinity and connection to Ireland, but don't have a working connection to Ireland. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nicky Ryan and Aoife Barry. If you want to support The Explainer into 2022, you can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to give a one-off donation or to become a monthly subscriber. If you're enjoying the episodes, do leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to help other people find us and to listen to our work. Thank you again. Slán Tamil.